because I don't want to. Okay. Know. And then, Ken, the time is 410. I'm going to count you in right now. You good? Okay. Ready? All right. Yep. Five, I'm going to count you in five, four, three, two, one, and you're live. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. I am very privileged to have with us a lady who has achieved excellence in the world of sports. And she is none other than a co former columnist to the Boston Globe, writer for Sports Illustrated, uh, formerly of ESPN, and now judging a book on the best American sports rating. And she is none other than the very eminent and qualified Jackie McMullen. Jackie, it's great to be able to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Ken. I appreciate it. All right. Tell me about this. I, uh, this was the last book on the best American sports writing uh, after 30 years. Was that a surprise to you? Did you know that when you got picked? Well, or, I, or I did, but I think we were hopeful and I'm still hopeful that it will return in perhaps just a different, um, a different brand, let's just say. But I am hopeful that um, the notion of this will continue. And Glenn Stout, who's the longtime editor um, of this series, who's just terrific, uh, I think he has some ideas about how to keep it going. So I'm hopeful that will happen because it's been a great tradition um, for journalists throughout sports. And, and, you know, a lot of times there's, there's almost, the, you know, these, the collections come from all sorts of places, not necessarily your traditional sport sports outlets. So I can tell you that for me, it was one of the great thrills of my career to be included in one of these anthologies. So I really hope it will continue um, I think the written word seems to be slipping away from us a bit as podcasts and, you know, TikTok and some other things uh, gain popularity. I, you know, to me, a great writer is still a treasure. So I'm hoping that we'll find a way to uh, preserve that. Had you written any articles uh, that got published in any of these 30 years in that yes. book? Yes. Um, actually, I did a, a five-part series on mental health um, in the NBA and I wrote that for ESPN, actually ESPN.com. And uh, they chose one of those articles um, to include in their anthology. Um, Cause I think it was a pretty topical um, idea at the time, something that was uh, drew a lot of attention, got quite a few players to talk about some of the struggles they had dealt with uh, throughout their lives, because it always starts, you know, it starts when you're young and it manifests itself through years and years. And so even though you're a multi-million dollar athlete, that doesn't mean that your life is perfect or that you don't have any, you know, things to contend with. So, so I was very fortunate that they chose one of those articles, which I was very glad about because I would say that mental health series is one of the more important things that I've ever written. So I was glad that was the one that made it in. All right. Let's talk about some of the articles that are in this issue. Like mm -hmm. the one about um, cheating in baseball with the Houston Astros, and right. the uh, the one about Alzheimer's and baseball. I found those two fascinating. Well, yeah. So the one thing that happens when you pick these stories uh, for your the anthology, the one that has your name on it, you uh, the the names of the authors are redacted, so you have no idea who wrote what. Okay, and that's a smart thing because we all have great friends in the industry and you don't want to, you know, pick someone just because you happen to be good friends with them. So it just so happened that uh, my colleague from around the horn, when I was at ESPN, Bill Plaschke, who was just a terrific writer for the LA times, he had written a story um, that I didn't need to, I didn't need to see his name on it. I knew he had written it and it was a terrific story. 
But really when it just came down to the end, it, oh, I agonized over it, but I didn't pick it. Okay. And in the end, we didn't pick that one. And of course I'm feeling terrible because Bill's one of my favorite people. And I think he's so incredibly talented, but then what do I find out that the story I picked about the, the folks with Alzheimer's and how baseball helped them was written by Bill Plaschke. So that was a wonderful surprise and it made me feel a lot better. And that story in particular uh, resonated with me also because it was literally about people whose memories were shot, people who are struggling with Alzheimer's, who you know, are having trouble sometimes remembering their family members' names. And yet they would get into a room and they would hold their baseball mitts and their baseball and they'd start talking about the sport that they loved and it helped them remember. It helped them have memories of their families and their loved ones. And uh, Bill is just a terrific writer. He, he's made me cry. I don't know how many times writing just beautiful um, prose in the LA Times. So that certainly was one of my favorites. And the reason I picked the Astros, uh, you know, science dealing was because um, it was really more of a nuts and bolts story, but I thought it was the most important story of that year because it, you know, I thought those guys, Ken Rosenthal and those other guys did a great job of you know, busting that story wide open. And it was an important one. So that was kind of a nod to my old newspaper roots, I guess. But, you know, yeah. the, the anthology, just as you know, because you've read it, is covers, yes. people don't realize it's not, um, you, it's hardly ever the major sports that get chosen. And it's hardly ever athletes you've even heard of. I mean, you know, Venus Williams happened to make this anthology, a wonderful story about did Venus Williams get her due. But you know, we were writing about uh, an executive from, uh, we chose an executive from the Sacramento Kings who stole $13 million. We, I picked a story about uh, um, a, a community that had to decide whether to shoot a tiger, you know. Um, you know, the world grandmaster chess champions and how they lose up to 22 pounds during their quest to become the best chess player in the world. So um not you know these this isn't an anthology full of stories about lebron james and mike trout you know that's not what it is yeah so. yeah, yeah. There's, there's some interesting stuff in there i mean i've i've read it uh over the past not everyone but i can remember certain stories about you know uh, growing up with growing up mantle was one that i'll never forget that mm -hmm. was written by a couple of mickey mantle's kids and uh another one was written on roger maris after the uh, after he had passed away, something called they shoot heroes, don't they, or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. And and some of those stories really stick with you. Yeah. Well, I mean, these you're talking about some of the best writers in the country, and again, many of them not traditional sports writers at all. You know, one of my favorite and most haunting stories in the anthology that I edited was. Um, it was about a prison in Louisiana, the Angola Maximum Security Prison. Oh, yeah, the rodeo. Story about the rodeo and how absolutely violent and vile this rodeo was, both for the animals, but also for the inmates who were riding these bulls or, you know, there was one, um, one of the, 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 you know, acts, if for lack of a better word, for inmates sitting in a table playing cards and then they let a bowl loose. And, and you know, just the way they, um, with so little regard for the, for the lives of these animals, but even so little regard for the lives of these inmates. And there's 6,000 people in the stands cheering and, you know, cheering their demise and cheering these, you know, brutally violent injuries. So I, I thought that story stayed with me quite a long time. Yep. Um... 
I, I heard a quote from you on YouTube and you said, I can't live without basketball. I feel the same about baseball. I can't live without that either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I don't believe I'm trying to think there. I think there was only one basketball story in this particular anthology and it was a great one. And again, it really didn't have anything to do about basketball. And it was one of my ESPN colleagues, Liz Merrill, who's a terrific long form writer. She's, I recommend everybody read her. She's terrific. And she wrote a story about Shelly Pennefeather. And I knew, I knew all about Shelly Pennefeather. She was a player at Villanova. Um, Not, you know, back when I was playing, I had remembered her well. She was a terrific, really, really outstanding basketball player. But she decided to become a nun and go into a convent and was only allowed to see her family every 10 years. And Elizabeth Merrill wrote about, um, you know, the 10 year in, you know, um, visit with her, it had been 10 years, a visit with her elderly mother, who she, you know, probably knew it might be the last time she ever saw her mother. It was just so beautifully done and, and you know, really struck me about Shelley's faith in God and, um, and, you know, her willingness to give her life to God and the effects it had on her family. And I mean, she was, I'm telling you, she was, she was a player that was very memorable, really excellent basketball player with an incredible, incredible story. Um, I, I remember talking with one of Liz's editors after I read it and said, they should turn this into a movie. It's really amazing. But I think that might be the only, I, can, I mean, I haven't looked at it in a while. I mean, that, it came out in 2020, so it's been a while since, um, you know, I've looked at it, but I think that was the only basketball story in there. Well, I guess, I guess Jeff David, the executive from the Sacramento Kings who managed to steal $13 million. That was, I guess that's a basketball story. That was also another one of my colleagues, Kevin Arnovitz, who did a great job on that story. Let's, let's go back a little bit, Jackie, uh, 19 years with the Boston Globe Mm -hmm. um, and then Sports Illustrated. Was that because there was more freedom for you with Sports Illustrated as opposed to the Globe? No, no. I mean, I, I went to the Globe. My, the Boston Globe is my dream job. I couldn't believe it when they hired me in 1982. Um, you know, I, I was, you were supposed to be an undergrad to do their internship program. They didn't hire, they didn't hire graduates because they didn't want them bugging them for jobs. So I deferred my graduation. I was actually a college senior but I deferred it so that I was, you know, it was a technicality. It made me an underclassman and eligible for the internship because I was playing basketball at the University of New Hampshire. So I wasn't able to do internships during the school year, like, like many of my other classmates, because, you know, the basketball, my basketball responsibilities covered both semesters. So I was a little behind my class in terms of doing the internship. So I did an internship in the summer of 82 with the Globe. Actually, I'm not in the sports department. I was on the news desk. The sports intern was Ian Thompson from Northwestern, who, of course, turned out to be a great Globe writer and worked for the International Herald Tribune and also for Sports Illustrated. And he's absolutely my closest friend in this industry. They literally grew up together in this business at the Boston Globe. So when I got done with my news internship, by then everyone knew I was graduating. It was the worst kept secret around. And I had hung, I used to hang around the sports department all in all my free time and um, wrote a couple stories for Vince Doria, who was the sports editor there. So anyway, long story short, he hired me um, in the summer of 82. And I was so fortunate to be there and uh, to enjoy it. But what happened was, because I was a local kid, I was 
born in New York City, but raised in Westwood, Massachusetts, I think the idea was, well, she's never going anywhere. She's always going to be here. She's a local kid. This is where she always wanted to work. So when Sports Illustrated made me an offer, it was just for more money than I could ever imagine. And uh, part of me thought, I need to leave the globe if I want to come back in a different capacity. So they gave me a signing bonus, Sports Illustrated did. That's how crazy the journalism world was in the 80s. Well, actually, that was almost closer to the 90s. So, um, so I did. I went to Sports Illustrated for five years. I did not enjoy it particularly. Um, I liked to be writing all the time. I was a newspaper person. I liked to be on deadline. And that's not the experience at Sports Illustrated. It's a very, very different place. Um, I mean, everyone treated me very well there, but it was, I, I, you know, I did it and I'm glad I did it. But, um, and then I quit for two years. I had two young kids. So I took a couple of years off with my kids and almost immediately when I resigned from Sports Illustrated, the Globe started calling me to come back and that enabled me to come back as a columnist because I had a little more gravitas. So I really think I needed to leave the Globe to be able to come back in the stature that I had hoped to reach. Now, in your introduction of this book on the best American sports writing, mm -hmm. you do mention in here that athletes are not accessible as accessible as they used to be. Is right. that one of the reasons why you decided to retire from ESPN? No, not really. Um, no, I, I think I think it's tough for young people today. For someone like me who's been around forever, we have a little different way of going about things. And, you know, you hope that your reputation opens some doors for you that maybe it wouldn't for others. For me, it was more um, a couple of things. I had been doing it a very, very long time since I was 21 years old. And uh, I had put in a lot of miles, um, both in the air and on the ground. And when the pandemic hit, it was, you know, almost impossible to have any access with anybody. And I'm trying to write long form stories over Zoom, which was not that much fun. And then, you know, my parents were um, getting older and my dad unfortunately had some health issues. And I thought, well, what, what do I have left to do? What is it that I haven't done yet that I really want to do? And honestly, I really couldn't come up with anything. So I thought, well, this is a good time to step away while you're feeling like, you know, you're on top. I, I didn't see the need to do television really anymore. Was, you know, I don't know how many 61 year old people we need on television, but that's just me. So uh, it just felt like a good time to go. And I'm glad that I did. My dad's health um, deteriorated quite rapidly over the last year. And I was able to be there with him almost every day. He passed away uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, but I was I got to be there with him. So I certainly haven't looked back at all. Um, I don't miss it that much if I'm honest about it. I had a really great run and uh, I'm good. I'm good. You know, that's interesting because when Bob Wilson, who we spoke about earlier, retired, I, uh, I asked him, what made you decide to retire? And mm -hmm. he said, when there was a strike in the NHL in the 90s, he got a chance to spend Christmas with his grandchildren and more time right. with his family. Right. And he just decided that was it. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, they're dragging me back in. So I did keep my contract with The Ringer. I left ESPN, but I had signed a contract with The Ringer with Bill Simmons um, to do a narrative podcast series, which I spent the last year and a half on um, called the NBA Icons Club. And that was a lot of work. Um, we're very happy with how it came out. We interviewed, you know, we covered everything from Wilt and Bill Russell all the way up through Giannis and LeBron and Kevin Durant and, you know, and involved... I mean, I, I think it was 35 to 40 
of the greatest players of all time that we got to talk to us, you know, everyone from Dr. J to Shaq to Steph Curry to Durant to uh, Michael Jordan, who was just phenomenal in this thing. He gave us an hour of his time and, you know, he really made the whole series for us. So I just finished that up not that long ago, a couple months ago. And, uh, you know, I wanted to just take a rest, but now the Celtics are in the conference finals and Bill Simmons is trying to talk me into writing a story for them. So I guess I'm not quite done yet. I'm trying <laughs> pulling me back in. So, you know, I, I read, uh, I don't know if you've read it yet, but uh, Lee Montville wrote a book on the 69 Celtics called okay. uh, uh, Tom Ben and short shorts. Yeah. He's the best. Lee's the best. Uh, you know, when I went to the globe, I was 21 years old and I had three men that completely, I don't know what I would have done without them. And they changed my life. And those three men are Lee Monfield, Bob Ryan, and Will McDonough. And each one of them in their own way mentored me in a fashion that I could, could never have dreamed of. You know, mm -hmm. I learned from Will, I learned about developing sources, breaking stories, you know, that kind of thing. Bob Ryan's the best game story that writer that ever lived. So I learned about covering <laughs> a team. And, and then Lee Monfield, I would argue, is the best columnist of all time, a lyricist, just beautiful, writes beautiful prose. So I had three men who were the best in their business and I could go into oh. work every day and talk to them. And yep. uh, I feel blessed that those men there, they were my friends. I was a pallbearer at Will's funeral. I, I miss him every day. I think about him all the time because he was, he was, you know, just so great to me, kind of almost like a second father and, you know, Bob and Lee, I still, they're still great friends of mine. Lee and I get out and play some bad golf at least two to three times a year. And, um, Bob Ryan's actually presenting me at the end of the month, at the end of June at the National Media Sports um, Association's Hall of Fame. Um, when Bob got into that Hall of Fame, I presented him and now I'm going in and he will present me. So uh, Ian and I always talked about how lucky we were to be around these legends who, you know, were so great, gracious with their time with us. It was really fantastic. Well, the reason I mentioned that is because in his book, he compares uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell. And I wonder if uh, writing your book uh, about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, The Game is Ours, mm -hmm. A, I wish you'd explain the title, and B, compare the two guys, compare the two players. You mean Larry and Magic? Larry and Magic, yes. Oh, yeah, they were very, very, very different. Um, you know, both great competitors. Um, really always keeping an eye on the other, what the other one was doing, but, but magic was an extrovert. He was the guy that walked in the room and, you know, he he'd shake everybody's hand. He'd smile at you. It'd make you feel like you were the only guy in the room. Larry um, didn't like crowds. They made him uncomfortable, almost claustrophobic. He really didn't want any attention. He didn't want any, he didn't like the limelight. He wasn't interested in it. So you have these two men that I'm trying to do this project with. And, you know, Larry, you know, I'd fly to Indiana and he'd say, all right, I'm going to pick you up at the gate at exactly this time. I'll be in a, you know, black Mercedes, whatever. And sure enough, you'd go out on the sidewalk and he'd pull up at the exact time he told you and he'd pick you up and off we'd go and we'd get to work. And, you know, magic's like, oh, come down to, come down to LA. I'll be doing this. And, you know, and I get on the plane and his agent's like, get off the plane. He's not there. You know, they were just crazy. Bird was as reliable as the day was long and, and magic wasn't, but once you got with magic, he was the most charming, interesting, kind, funny, um, revealing. He was fantastic. So, mm. you know, you had to learn to 
deal with both personalities. They were very, very, very different. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you talk about a guy like a Mickey Mantle, everybody says, oh, if he had two good legs, you know, and taken care of himself, what more he could accomplish. And I had forgotten until Bob Ryan mentioned it to me that Larry Bird played with an injury. Uh, and I thought, boy, what, what if he didn't have that injury? Injury? Well, injuries. I mean, he had, oh, okay. he had Achilles surgery on both heels. He had a bad elbow. And of course, in the end, his back is what... Um, yeah, man, he he had to have fusion surgery in his back. He was he played um the final years of his career. He was he was in traction half the time in the hospital. He'd get out of the hospital and go to the, the garden and play a playoff game. I mean, I've never seen anybody tougher. I can tell you that. So, <laughs> um, you know, he fused his back. And I remember they had to fuse his back. And he told me it was he was glad it happened because he didn't want to be like all these other guys that tried to make a comeback. It was going to be impossible for him physically. So. It's inter- I, I can remember somebody telling me that on a Monday morning, there was a headline in the Boston Globe on the front page and all it's, and I don't know which game it was, but all the headlines said was, now that was a Larry Bird game. <laughs> He's one of the greatest competitors I've ever seen. I, I, you know, I've gotten to know Michael very well, Curry, all these guys. I know them all pretty well. Jordan, you know, Julius, all these guys, Russell. And uh, if, if I had a team and someone needed to score a basket for me with five seconds to go, I'm giving it to Larry. I know you've done commentary and stuff like that, but did you ever have a secret desire to do either color or basketball play-by-play as a friend of ours used to say, high above courtside? No, not really. I didn't. No, um, no I, I really love to write. And, um, you know, I have done television. I have done some radio. Um, but I always considered myself a writer and that was first and foremost, what I was interested in. I had, I did fill in a couple of times um, for the Celtics broadcast, I think three times, two or three times um, I got to do that. And it was fun. I did it with Mike Gorman. I filled in for Tommy Heinsohn back in the day and uh, I enjoyed it immensely, but uh, not for me. No, not for me. <laughs> you know what? I really miss Tommy Heinsohn. Oh, I do too. He was such I, a great guy. Wonderful man. I, I, I've known him for years. He used to come in when I was at BZ. He used to come in to see Larry Glick. And, mm-hmm. and it was great because Larry's knowledge of sports was, forget it. <laughs> he didn't have it. But, right. you know, Tommy would always come in and Larry would always give him a hard time. Larry used to call him the big German. Yeah, Tommy's, Tommy was really a fixture in the Celtics, you know, lore as a player, as a coach as a commentator, as someone that would, you know, walk up to the players and the players respected him and he'd give them, sometimes it was solicited advice. Sometimes it was unsolicited and just a big presence. I mean, for years you go into the press room and there he is sitting down, you know, three hours before the game, holding court, telling stories and everybody's listening rapidly. Um, you know, I miss him. I miss him quite a bit. We've lost a lot of the great ones, Sam and John Havlicek and Casey Jones. We've lost all those guys. In just the last two years, it's been, it's been, t- it's been really tough. You know, there's a people yeah. great respect for and who treated me with great respect, which, you know, back then, you know, when I first started out, there weren't very many people that looked like me doing this. And I never had a single issue with any of these hall of fame legends from the Celtics. They were so respectful to me and so helpful to me. And, you know, Bob Cousy, by the way, at the front of the line on that. So, mm. um, so it's tough to watch these guys, you know, one by one, they, you know, they're passing away. It's, it's the end of an era. That's for sure. 
Yep. The Coos is still around, though. Yeah, he is. I talk to him from time to time. I just call to check in on, on him occasionally. You know, he's not super mobile anymore, but he does get down to Florida and he has a great group of friends that, you know, they get together. And his, his daughters, of course, keep a close eye on him. Coos lost his wife, Missy, some years ago now. It's been a while now. Yep. yep. Um, still has great opinions. Great opinions. His best friend is Fauci. He and Fauci talk all the time. Uh, tell me about your award with a guy who I've listened to, and that's Joe Tate. Oh, Joe's great. Yeah, Joe was the Cleveland um, Cleveland Cavaliers play-by-play um, -play guy. So we were fortunate enough together in 2010 to win the Kurt Gowdy Award, which is given by the Naismith Hall of Fame. And for us basketball writers, it's the highest possible honor. So I was thrilled to go in with Joe, who's just such a wonderful person. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a big night. And we were lucky too, in that it was the same year they inducted the dream team. So, you know, we are, we get our awards the night before and they were all there. Charles was there. Larry was there. I remember I came off the stage. I was nervous as can be. I had to give a speech and I was so relieved it was over. And I came off the stage and these big arms grabbed me and gave me a big hug. And I didn't realize it was Larry. It was wonderful. You know, so <laughs> not only did we have a great night, but all the, you know, all these players that I had covered for years, Charles and I are pretty close and I've done a lot with him. He was there and, Irvin was there and, you know, Chris Mullen, who I really loved. And, you know, it was really, really a special, special weekend. I'll never forget it. My family was there. My parents were there. My kids, my best friend and her husband, my sister and her husband. It was just a really special evening. And of course, the Globe guys, they came out in force, you know, my Vince Doria, my my sports editor, and then Don Squar, who followed him and Monthill was there and Ryan was there. It was it was really Ian, my friend Ian Thompson. They were all there. It was really special. Switching gears a little bit. Were you surprised with the whole Brady incident? Which one? When he when, well, <laughs> well, first of all, when he left. And secondly, when he retired and decided to come back. And a lot of people thought he would come back with the Patriots. And they were very disappointed when he decided not to. Um, no, I wasn't surprised. I mean, I think if you were following what had, was going on with the Patriots during that time, it was pretty clear that Bill Belichick was ready to move on. He wasn't, you know, he wanted to move on. He wanted to keep Jimmy Garoppolo. And I think Kraft overruled him on that. But he, you know, the, the statistics tell you that as quarterbacks age there, they start to fall off cliffs, just like with shooting guards, they get to a certain age and, you know, their productivity declines. Now, clearly Tom is the exception, not the rule and to, has taken great care of himself. But you know, I think in a perfect world, it never should have happened. But, uh, you know, he and Bill, they were they didn't quite see this, see it the same way in the end. So uh, I don't blame Tom Brady at all. I think um, it's really just how, you know, it's just in the end how things how the Patriots, I think, kind of wanted things to go. And I bet they regret it just a bit. <laughs> I was. Really, yeah, I was really happy how well he did in Tampa Bay. I didn't love this last brief retirement and return because. There seems to be a little bit of evidence that it had something to do with Bruce Arians. So I don't love that. I don't love that on Tom's resume, but Tom was nothing but fantastic. You know, he always handled himself with, with professionalism and grace. And, you know, I had occasion to cover him for almost all the Super Bowls that he won. And he was always, you know, very gracious with his time with me. And, you know, I have a great deal of respect for him. I think that whole deflate gate, the way he hit, took the high road. I don't know how he did it. I would never have been able to do that if I was him. Take the high road the way he did over a, a bunch of nonsense, frankly. So, um, yeah. Well, the sports, the sports talk shows had a ball with it. 
Well, I mean, it just, I, I did a story during that time talking to all these ex quarterbacks about all the things they used to do with footballs before games, they put them through the washer and the dryer and they deflate them and inflate them and, you know, massage them with corn oil. And one of them was baby powder. So I, that story to me was just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You, you must also be pleased about the great advances of, of women in sports. I mean, besides yourself, you have Susan Waldman, who's a broadcaster with the Yankees. The Yankees have a woman manager. Uh, the San Francisco Giants have a PA announcer. We had a young lady who was a PA announcer at Fenway for two years, and now she's a she's a pastor somewhere in Cambridge. Um, a lot of the most of the sideline reporters on all of your sports broadcasts are women. This must make you feel pretty good. Well. It just should have happened a lot sooner. And wow, yeah, um, I agree with that. But um, yeah, there's just great women. I mean, Doris Burke is the OG as far as I'm concerned in the broadcasting world. I know Doris well. She's terrific. And, you know, there's there's great women. All, I mean, Michelle Tafoya just retired from uh, Monday Night Football. I thought she was always someone that handled herself so beautifully. And, I, you know, I'm, I'll leave someone out if we go through. I know Susan well, too. She's you know, she's, you got to be tough to be in these positions that we're in, especially when there's always people that don't want you there. But I feel as though it's, you know, I, when I first started, I was almost always the only woman in a press box. I can't remember the last time I was the only woman. It's, it just doesn't happen anymore. There's so many. Um, and what's, what's happening that, and I'm surprised it took this long is what we're seeing now are the ex athletes becoming part of the news media. And that makes perfect sense to me. Like there's a great young woman named Monica McNutt, who I did a little work with on around the horn right before I left. And she was an ex basketball player from Georgetown. And now ESPN's using her all over the place as they should, because she's an ex baller. Look at Candace Parker. Terrific. She's going to have a great post playing career. Shanae Ogumake. There's lots of, these women are the ex athletes, you know, and it happened in tennis, right? Chrissy Everett was doing commentary, yep. Shriver. It makes perfect sense. And uh, Dottie Pepper does golf, you know, so that's the next wave. It'll be the ex-athletes who have experienced this. And uh, I think it's good. You listen to sports talk shows anymore? I used to, but I don't anymore. I have to be honest. I never did. Even when I was on them. Yeah. It's never really? been something that um, I think they're, you know, I, I respect, I mean, most of them are my friends that do it. I don't, I would, you know, I had a couple of opportunities when EEI really had it going to, to join some of their shows um, you know, as a host, a full-time host, but I, I just couldn't envision myself doing it. Um, when you talk that much for that long, you're going to say something dumb or wrong or offensive. And uh, so to me, it, it just was never appealing. <laughs> I remember the days when there was only one sports show, two hours a night with a fellow named Guy Manila. I know Guy Manila, his, his uh, son, Scott Manila is my brother-in-law. So. Oh, uh, you're kidding. No, Scott's a great guy and his dad is a wonderful person and I'm still living. And, um, you know, he, he, he's everybody's, you know, everybody should remember Guy Manila. You know what? I tried to contact him. He gave me a cell phone number and I called it and it was said it was disconnected. So I have no way of reaching him anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, you know, he's had some health issues in recent years. Um, yeah, I know. He's got a wonderful yeah. family and they are, they've, they're all, you know, he spends a lot of time in Florida and, He's, um, yeah, he's a great, there's so many great voices that came out of New England, and Guy is certainly right at the top of that list. I'll, I'll tell you a quick Johnny Most story. 
Gary LaPierre came into BZ one day and he said, you guys better send somebody up to accounting because Johnny's upset and he's using his 10 seconds to go voice. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> Johnny. Johnny was tough. He was tough for me. He um, didn't quite understand what I was doing there. So we didn't have a lot of interactions. Interesting. Interesting. Are you working on any more, any more books? No, thank you. I'm trying <laughs> to be retired. I'm trying to be retired, but people keep pulling me back in, but I'm really, I'm really hopeful to be fully retired within the next year. That's the, that's the plan. Well, I watched your retirement on ESPN and I got to tell you, you held it together pretty well. Well, I did all my crying on the way there. I mean, those were a great group of people that mean a lot to me, um, especially the around the horn crew who I spent you know, almost 20 some odd years with. And many of them have become my great friends. Um, so that was one of the hardest things to walk away from, but you know, it's kind of a relief now because by doing that show, you had to follow all the sports, not just basketball. You had to know what was going on with baseball and football and, and you know, soccer and everything. And it's kind of a relief now not to have to be up to speed on all of those sports. That's no longer something I have to do. So it's taken a lot off my plate, which I kind of appreciate. <laughs> um, again, I was impressed with your comments on the Boston Bruins. And I wish you would take a minute or two and talk about that. Because 71 was my first year working in Boston. Mm -hmm. And I was here when they won the Stanley Cup uh, in 72. Yep. And uh, remember, as everybody does, the great game of uh, May 10th, 1970. Yeah. Yep. Bobby with, Orr. With so, a fellow I mean, named Bobby Orr. Yeah. He grew up in Boston. My dad was born and raised in Queens. So he was not a, a Bruins fan. He was a Rangers fan. He was not a Boston fan at all of any of the sports. He was a Yankees fan. So, but I did, you know, I grew up playing street hockey with the boys in my neighborhood and I loved hockey. I couldn't skate, but it was by far my favorite sport. I didn't follow the Celtics at all as a kid, just the Bruins. I had all their um, posters up in my room. I had that poster of Bobby Orr with all the trophies that he won that year. And I cut out all the newspaper articles that, you know, Franny Rosa was writing and Joe Fitz and all those guys. And I had them in a scrapbook that I had under my bed because I think I knew even then I wanted to be a journalist. So, you know, I grew up a huge Bruins fan. Um, I loved the board that Johnny Pearson and Fred Cusack would have up every Sunday night on WSBK TV channel 38. And it would show all the leading scores and Phil Esposito was always near the top. So those are all just childhood memories of mine. My dad took me to Jacques Plante's first game as a Bruin and he was a shutout four to nothing shutout. And he was, I don't know if that's exactly the score, but it was a shutout. I was a kid. I was just a kid. And I remember years later when I got into our, to the industry, I got to know Nate Greenberg very well, the spectacular XPR guy for the Bruins, one of the, one of the all-time greats. And uh, I remember talking with him one day and telling him the story about Jacques Plante and how he was, you know, one of my favorite players, even after, even before the Bruins. And then after he left and he said, he was one of the most difficult guys we had. They gave him a rental car for the year when they traded for him. And then when he didn't return, he drove away with the rental car and never returned. It <laughs> wasn't one of the most popular Bruins players. You know what? I remember that game. I think it was a Sunday afternoon, as a matter of fact, in March. Yeah, uh, I don't remember. I just know I was with my dad and I remember Plant raising his hands at the end of the game. And it was really, really cool to be there. I, I just loved the Bruins. It was a really special day when my dad and I went into the Bruins game together. Well, you mentioned Fred Cusick. He was my instructor when I was in college. Yeah, he was. I mean, I never met Fred 
but um, just got to watch him in action as, a, you know, as a young person. And he was part of my childhood, big part of my childhood. Yep. I got to know him as an instructor. And um, when he was working at BZ for a while, and of course, after he took over the games on channel 38, I, uh, Bob Wilson came in and I was real good friends with Bob. So great we had some great, great voices. Um, is there anything that has, has there been anybody that you have tried to get and couldn't that got away for one reason or another? Huh. Um, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. <laughs> not, not off the top of my head. Um, you know, I always would have liked to have done something with Serena Williams, but I never really was. I never really covered tennis regularly when I was younger at the globe. You know, I used to cover that event they had up in North Conway, New Hampshire, which was a big event because um, it preceded the U.S. Open and it was the same surface as the U.S. Open. So, you know, this is back when Lindell was playing and Boris Becker and all those guys, McEnroe. But, you know, by the time I by the time Serena Williams hit the uh, hit the scene, I was on to I was pretty much covering just, you know, pro basketball, pro football, that kind of thing. So I never got a chance, but I, I would have loved to have sit down with Serena Williams. I think she's fascinating and a terrific uh you know, role model for young women everywhere. And um, I, I would have liked to have sit down with her, but I, it's not like I really tried, but I just probably would have enjoyed that, I think. Mm. All right. Give me a sports prediction. You think we're going to beat the Heat? Not if Wild Horford and Marcus Smart aren't playing now. People are underestimating the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler is a beast. He's a beast. <laughs> He's scarier to me than, than Giannis in some ways because he just – you know, he's, he's really, really good. People don't realize how good he is. Well, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for sitting down and doing this. I hope someday we can do this again. And uh, I don't know what, maybe we can uh, even do it at the studio and get a chance to meet in person, but, maybe. but you are great. Well, credit I to retired, these Ken, so just keep that in mind. I might. Be <laughs> but thanks uh, for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. You're a great. You're a great person. You're a credit to the industry and, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. You bet. Thanks, Ken. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk.